Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. We're going to open the show today with our film buff or film bluff quiz. We're going to do some new recommendations. It's then the grand final of Nerd of the Mastery Mind, and it's actually a three-way tie. So Peter versus John versus Dan. And I have got cunning questions for you. And I have dreamt of a freeway many, many times, but never <laughs> involving Dan or Peter. So. Um, just to clarify, are these questions where John gets really easy questions again and we get really difficult ones again? Let's cover that when we come to it. Okay. Okay. I'm, you I'm told gonna, me to I... interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> you said specifically before we started recording, interrupt the intro. Yes, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know that I'm going to control the freeway. The freeway? Oh. The three-way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. like, don't fuck with me. Um, well, you never heard that on University <laughs> Challenge, yeah. did you? Even in a three-way. <laughs> yeah. And finally, John has yet another shameful gap. And I it's do. an astonishing one. So we're going to be learning what he thinks of Mission Impossible, the first one. I've got you a present, Dan. Have you? I have, yes. Dan's moved house. Yes. He's now Scottish. Is that right? You become you become Scottish as soon as you move. Yeah, they do brand you. I can't hear the yeah. change in his accent yet, though. No, no, it be it takes two to three weeks. He is wearing a kilt and a CU Jimmy hat, though. That's true. Yeah, yeah, it's compulsory. <laughs> so after the last episode, where we heard that Star Tours was Dan's happy place. Yes. I have a gift for Dan as a, a housewarming gift. Oh, this is like uh, one of those unboxing videos. I understand the youth of today are into. Wow. Your very own Star Tours piggy bank. That's incredible. <gasps> that is um, genuinely a very nice yeah. gift. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, John. For the benefit of listeners, we've got C-3PO and R2 standing on a plinth with the Star Tours logo. And then underneath is the open and close to keep your loose change in there. And oh, is that what that is? <laughs> I would assume so. Uh, you know how I said Star Tours was my happy place? Oh, yeah, you I'm might, gonna, you, you might not gonna... want to. Don't undo that. <laughs> Oh, it's everywhere. Oh, my. Oh, Cap- Captain Rex, what have you brought upon the world? Now, that is a, a beautiful artifact. We will take a photo of it and we will tweet it out yeah. on the Nerdfest Twitter account when this episode comes out. I'm very proud of that new possession. I have a feeling that Amy will not allow it in the house, but I will keep it somewhere at work, perhaps. You could have it as a garden gnome. We could have it as a garden gnome. Garden droids. Garden droids. Yeah. Oh, they don't have garden droids in Star Wars. They should do. Yeah. You think Naboo would have loads of them with all those nice gardens? I suppose like if an R2 unit's broken, you could just use it as a composter. Yeah, that's true. BB-8 could flatten your lawn for you. Yeah. Yeah, I I understand that's what Ryan Johnson's new trilogy is going to be about. The fans will love that. Gardening. Yeah. Yeah, he tried to progress the saga forward and and the internet hated him for it, so he's going to do a gardening spin-off. Yeah, Gardening of the Galaxy. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) Yeah. Except he gets removed before he gets shot. (laughs) So first up is film buff or film bluff. This is where we have all got three pieces of entertainment trivia, but we have made one of them up. So we've got three facts. One of them is a bluff. We've got to guess which one that is. Dan, would you like to go first? My buff or bluff this episode is about first appearances of famous characters. So the three facts are as follows. 
Number one. Jimmy Olsen made his first appearance not in a Superman comic, but on a Superman radio show. Number two. Boba Fett made his first appearance not in The Empire Strikes Back, but on the Star Wars Holiday Special. And number three. Black Panther made his first appearance not in his own comic, but in an issue of the Fantastic Four. There's a um, Superman radio show. Yeah, there was in the 30s. Yeah, and quite a lot of what we know as Superman lore actually comes from the radio show. I, mean, I think even Kryptonite might be a radio show invention. I'm not entirely sure, but there's, there's quite a lot. And that's part of the reason the Superman rights are such a mess. Mm. Uh, a lot of it came from the radio show. A lot of it came from different comic book writers. So I'm pretty sure that that one is correct. I'm, I'm very sure the second one was correct. I've, I've, I've seen the Star Wars Holiday Special. I never have. Oh, it's, it's a, it's a treat for you. Yeah. Does, does that class as a shameful gap or is that a lucky escape? <laughs> it's, a, it's a take one for the team. Okay. We'll have to do yeah. it together, Dan, because I haven't seen it either. Yeah, I, I will happily watch the Star Wars Holiday Special. Okay. But uh, Boba Fett is a cartoon in the Star Wars Holiday Special. So does the cartoon appearance count then? It is part of the holiday special. Yeah. I can okay. confirm the cartoon is in that special. Okay. It's pretty much the only thing the holiday special is famous for, so you're not going to get us with that one. <laughs> you, you're forgetting Lumpy. Lumpy, yes. Uh, is that him. Chewie's son? That is Chewie's son. Yeah. Mala, I think his wife's mm-hmm. called. And Itchy is his yes. father. I'm not surprised with that for... Yeah. I think Carrie Fisher's got no memory of making the holiday special. <laughs> oh, shit. Could make a really off-colour thing about how she probably doesn't have any memory of anything. Yes, But that would be disrespectful to Carrie Fisher, who we all love very, yes. very dearly very and much. wish was still with us. Yes, we do. She is. She's, she's in episode nine. Yeah. Using footage from The Force Awakens. That's yep. going to that's gonna be odd. Because... You're gonna. It's gonna instantly take you out of the story of the film because you know any time you see her, they've had to rework the script around whatever it was she said in that unused footage. Yeah. So you. I I don't care though. I just I, I just know. Want to I see more I, of I it. want her story to be finished, but at the same time, I think you're watching it and you go, "Well, that I wonder what they were originally intending," because that probably wasn't what she was going to have said at this yeah. point in the film. I'm gonna wait to see what she does say because it might be just incredibly fortunate and poignant. It just that does, it just works it, out. It just works out. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful because they wouldn't have come up with a solution that they weren't happy with. I don't think, yeah. even though it's, mm. it's a pretty impossible situation to be in. Yeah. They've said they're using footage and they said they're not using CGI. They've never said that they're not using ADR or anything. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there could be some dialogue replacement there. Yeah. Yeah. I can't take credit for this, but there's somebody on Twitter who said um, they really wanted to see it, but intercut with Carrie Fisher's red carpet footage from The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. So basically, like, it's Luke Skywalker going, oh, what can you do? And then cuts to Kai Fisher with a French bulldog going, oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, coming back to your film, Buff, um, Sorry, yeah. I'm guessing yeah. by process of elimination, that means the Black Panther fact you have made up. I think it's true he didn't do it in his own comic, but not true that it was the Fantastic Four. I thought it was the Avengers. Yeah, I'm going to pick the third one as false. I'm also going to do that because I, I know the other two are true. I um, believe John for a change. Again. <laughs> Unanimous. Yeah. You're all wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. John. So Jimmy Olsen <laughs> did make his first appearance on a Superman radio show. Uh, the early comics had an office boy, but Olsen became a character so that the radio version of Superman had somebody to talk to because thought bubbles don't work on the radio. Mm-hmm. Black Panther did make his debut with the Fantastic Four in 1966 and didn't get his own comic until 1973. 
Boba Fett actually made a public appearance at the oh. San Anselmo County Fair two <laughs> months before the holiday special aired. Uh, San Anselmo's near where George Lucas was based, and someone thought it would be good to have Star Wars characters appear in the town's annual parade. So they got Darth Vader, they got Stormtroopers, and they got Boba Fett, and there is footage and there are photos of Fett walking alongside Vader and the Stormtroopers before he ever appeared on the holiday special. Mm. Very good. Yeah. You, have, you have Star Wars just with a Star Wars fact I didn't know. Huzzah. <laughs> I didn't know it till I read it last mm. week either. <laughs> John would like to go next? Um, yes. Okay. My film before film bluffs are about the cinematic career or lack of, of one Michael Jackson. He appeared in Thriller. He had a little cameo in Men in Black, but he didn't want to be an actor and particularly really liked superheroes. And he wanted to appear in some superhero films. Famously, he wanted to play Jar Jar Binks. He really uh, pushed for the role of Jar Jar Binks before Ahmed Bist got it. But in terms of DC and Marvel, here are three things that he went for. Two of which are true, one of which is completely made up. Number one, Michael Jackson really wanted to play Spider-Man. He approached Stan Lee and said, Stan, can you make me be Spider-Man? He said he didn't own the rights. Michael Jackson then tried to buy Marvel Comics to get the rights to Spider-Man so he could play the character. Number two, Michael Jackson auditioned for the role of Professor X in the (laughs) X-Men at the same time as Patrick Stewart did. He really wanted the role and he got as far as being being auditioned for the role. (laughs) And finally, Michael Jackson really, really wanted to play Robin in Batman Forever to the extent that he sent Joel Schumacher a song he'd written called I'll Be Your Boy Wonder. <laughs> mm, that last little touch seems a bit John, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Two of these are true, one of which is now, made up. we've been yeah. cottoning on to John's tactic with Buffalo Bluff yeah. in that there's always one that seems so obviously made up. Because it's so puntastic. Yeah, yeah, but this time there are two that could qualify for that. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether it's a double film bluff and that the one that sounded convincing, the first one, is actually the untrue one. Yeah. And that he tried to buy Marvel Studios. Wow. Oh, sorry, it was Marvel Comics. Yeah. But, um, it sounds like something he would do. Yeah. The thing they, that's throwing me off is that normally John goes on and on and on when he wants us to try and believe something. But the second one, which is the most unbelievable, he stopped very, very briefly. So is that because it's true or because he's learned but, No, he's learned. Detecting. We know his tactics, so he's just stopped right, talking. Good. <laughs> this is like a mind game yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to remember with Marvel Comics, it wasn't what it is now, so it was. Yeah. It could have been bought mm-hmm. relatively cheaply. No, they yeah. did, they yeah. did sell so many rights. To, I mean, they must have sold the rights to Spider-Man in the 90s. They got rid of the rights to so many of their characters mm. to keep yeah. going. Now, James Cameron was working on a Spider-Man film for a long time in the 90s, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah, he is like in Martin Bashir's documentary. I think he was in Las Vegas, and he was like um, in an animal safari sort of. Um, kind of monument type thing and he just walked around going I'll buy that one buy that one buy that one he's not good with money so I, I would presume he would buy the studios just to get a part I just I believe that one but yeah, and uh, Professor X if you can imagine like Magneto we need to work together the humans and the mutants why can't okay, they just now understand now, to talk us out now it. I yeah, now, yeah that's, that's <laughs> that really long trying to convince thing <laughs> that you mentioned I'm not saying you know. I'm not, then, I'm not saying that's what. I'm just saying that's what it would sound like. There's, yeah. there's no then, video then again, footage of it. You, you mentioned it was an an audition. 
you could audition as many different people as you want, mm. and there's no harm in auditioning people who are never going to get the part, you, other yeah, than a waste do of it time. Just to keep someone happy. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, would Michael Jackson audition for a part? Would he not just ask to have it and he gets it or he doesn't? I think, yeah, if you're doing something very out of your expected comfort zone, that yeah. would make sense. I mean, he certainly did. He, he got as far as auditioning. What was the third one again? The third one was that oh, Michael Robin. Jackson wanted to play Robin in Batman Forever and sent Joel Schumacher a song he wrote specially for it called I'll Be Your Boy Wonder, mm. which has never been heard. Michael Jackson would have been how much younger than Val Kilmer at that point? Probably about the same age. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think he ever seriously got considered for it. It's been like, was it Sean Penn in um, Batman Returns that turned up at, at Tim Burton's office in a cat suit? What? <laughs> Not Sean Penn, uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> Robin Wright Penn. I thought it was Sean Young. <laughs> Very different one, one of the Sean. Sean Young apparently turned up at Tim Burton's house dressed in a cat woman outfit she'd made. So it's not the craziest thing people have done to try and get involved in Batman. Right. Let's take another approach. You could understand why anyone would want to be Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Why the hell would he want to be Professor X and be stuck in a wheelchair all the time? And I have no idea. But apparently he identified with the character. You, you would think there'd be better characters in X-Men for him to go for. Yeah. I'm going with my go. I'm going to go with that one, Professor Xavier. You think Professor Xavier is the lie? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm going for that reason. I'm afraid it is Robin is the lie. Oh. Oh. He, did, he did audition for the part of Professor Xavier in X-Men. Wow. There was an article with one of the writers in Den of Geek a few weeks ago where they talked about like the really surprising people that had auditioned for it. So I think Mel Gibson for Wolverine was talked about for a while. I can imagine that. But apparently Michael Jackson did audition. And also uh, Michael Jackson did try and buy Marvel Comics so he could play Spider-Man. What happened to that deal? I don't know. And this is a story told by Stan Lee as well. So, mm. So how accurate it is. It's accurate enough for the purposes of a film buff. <laughs> it is sourced on more than one internet page that I haven't written. And that is the next step, by the way. I am creating fake Wikipedia <laughs> entries for the, for the bluffs. My film buff or film bluff is about Indiana Jones. Ooh. Number one, Kate Capshaw's dress was eaten by an elephant in the jungle. During the film or just for fun, just <laughs> afterwards? What kind of fun do you have in the jungle? (laughs) Depends if there's an elephant there or not. (laughs) The Temple of Doom was the first ever film to be rated PG-13. And when he was speaking about episode four, which does exist. Yeah, it's coming out in a couple of years. (laughs) Yeah. Shia LaBeouf told reporters at the Cannes Film Festival, I feel like I dropped the ball on the legacy that people loved and cherish. I wish he'd just fuck off. It's just an unpleasant man that can't act. It looked like he'd be happier, I don't know, selling overpriced shirts in a shop in Beverly Hills or something and sneering at the customers. I think that's his next performance <laughs> art project, actually. Um, there is an elephant in Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this was t- the, they were both Temple, yeah. Yeah, because she wasn't in any of the others. Other ones, no. Although I suppose by Last Crusade she would have been married to Spielberg. Yeah. But there were no elephants in Last Crusade. No, there was in the circus bit at the yeah. start. Spielberg could probably buy an train. elephant. He's got the money to buy an elephant and to buy a trainer to train the elephant to... To specifically eat his wife's dress. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, let's go for a walk in the jungle. Oh, oh, look at that elephant. Oh, you're naked. That's probably That's what just, happened. Is this yeah. what happens in your head, John? <laughs> now, I know that Spielberg is responsible for the PG-13 rating, 
mm-hmm. but I'm I can't remember if it was for Temple of Doom or whether it was something else. There was uh, one was introduced for Batman in the UK, wasn't it? That was the twelve rating for Batman. Yeah, uh, and I, but I think Temple of Doom because obviously with all the blood and everything, it's, yeah, it's and the hard ripping. It's stuff. quite a dark film. It either was the first PG thirteen, or is the reason why there was a PG thirteen because of a complaints about it. But there was a bit sort of like. Poltergeist was a PG and Gremlins was a PG mm. and there was a big thing around that time of people really, really pushing the PG barrier and mm. Spielberg getting away of it in a way that other directors probably wouldn't. Yeah. Mm. So I'm 95% sure that Temple of Doom is the first PG-13. The Temple of Doom was the first Indiana Jones film I saw. The image that just sticks in my ha- head is the chilled monkey brains. Mm-hmm. Mm. That just seared itself into my memory and I was quite afraid to watch any of the other films for a few years afterwards because mm-hmm. it freaked me out. I don't like it as a film. I'm not a massive Temple of Doom fan. I just think it's got like a dark nastiness to it and that the others don't have it. The other two are like just really joyful, fun adventures and there's like nasty Indiana Jones where it's evil and bits of it and stuff and it's quite unpleasant. Yeah, not my favourite. Um... We've gone off the point. Shia, 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 Shia LaBeouf, LaBeouf, I can imagine Shia saying LaBeouf. something yeah, like that on the she red did carpet. Say, he, he did say he dropped the ball on the film, yeah. Mm. So I'm assuming you've not just wedged two bits of quotes together. Mm. That's it, yeah, so I know that is true. Might it not have been an elephant for the... I try and lure um, Louise into Jesmond Dean, where I've trained an, <laughs> I've trained an otter to uh, nibble at a bra until <laughs> it's taken me four years. <laughs> 17 otters. <laughs> And I'm banned from Jesmond Dean, so it's not... It's not it's You're not, not banned from Louise yet? No. <laughs> no, you've been wearing the bras yourself as I practice, have, yeah. You? I've, been, I've been dressing up in a bra, going down to Jesmond Dean. And attaching otters <laughs> to attaching your Attaching otters to myself, yeah. And, and this is what you told the magistrate, and That's exactly, it? yeah. <laughs> so, when you say you went off the point and... <laughs> <laughs> you, I don't know how you got um, sexual I'm, otters. It's just, I mean, if Spielberg... Spielberg could afford an elephant. Mm. He lives where there's elephants. There's no elephants in Newcastle. Mm. I'm going to say elephant untrue. I'm going to say that just because I think I know the other two are true. I'm going to say Sheila Berth to be different. Okay. Oh, did he say that about Transformers? Oh. No, he, he was in three of those, and I don't imagine Transformers would ever have gone to Cannes. I'm going to go for the elephant harassing Kate Capshaw being a lie. Okay, and then you're going for Shia LaBeouf. Yep. Yep. Uh, you're all wrong. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the elephant story is true, so it's her dress, then she just like hangs it up on a branch to dry. Oh, she wasn't wearing it. We made the assumption that she was wearing the dress. Mm. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. That's my mistake. Carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, when the costume designer filled in the insurance claim, they um, put in the, the reason, eaten by an elephant. The story about, yeah, Shia LaBeouf, he did say that about the film, and Harrison Ford came out afterwards and says he's a fucking idiot for not supporting the film. The film inspired the first PG-13 rating, but it wasn't the first. So um, because it was so kind of violent, Spielberg kind of spoke to the the certificate. Censors, yeah. And said there should be like an interim between PG and R. The first ever film to receive a PG-13 rating was Red Dawn. Really? Mm. Yes, uh, that was the one. I read that mm. a couple of weeks ago. It is true. Well, that's useful now. I know. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't, I would not have guessed Red Dawn was the first PG-13, the Patrick Swayze one. Did anyone see yeah. the remake? 
That had no. Chris Hemsworth in it, did it not? It did, yeah. So have you not seen a... There's a Chris Hemsworth film Mm-mm. that you haven't seen? Uh, no, I haven't seen it, but I will know what I'm doing later. <laughs> <laughs> How bad does a film with Chris Hemsworth in have to be where the pleasure of watching Chris Hemsworth is outdone by the sheer terribleness of the f- film? It can be worse than Titanic 2 and I'd still watch it. Oh dear. <laughs> Would you watch his episodes of Home and Away? Oh God, yeah. Or have you watched his episodes <laughs> of Home and Away? And there must be a montage on YouTube. I haven't I haven't seen him anything in, in Home and Away, actually. I know what I'm doing later. later. (laughs) Hold me in your arms, don't let me go. (laughs) I can't believe I missed him being in London. I was was stranded in London and only when I was on the plane and not being able to move anywhere did I realise that he was also in London, shirtless, practising for Men in Black, like doing loads of ninja moves. In a London park, wasn't it? It was 36 degrees already, but I'd nearly puddle on the floor. (laughs) Uh, Peter? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for my buff or bluff, the first one is that Robert Heinlein, the author of Starship Troopers, invented the waterbed, writing about it in his 1961 novel Stranger in a Strange Land, and this prevented someone else getting a patent seven years later. We're all looking forward to the Meg, where Jason Statham fights a prehistoric monster shark which has got to be better than the dreadful Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, which gives me a tenuous link to my next fact, <laughs> uh, which is that giant octopuses can't tell what sex another octopus is by sight or smell. And that's have... what you told the magistrate. <laughs> <laughs> they have to do it by feeling bumps on each other's head. <laughs> and the third fact, which Dan may have opinions on, when George Washington was sworn in, his official title was His High Mightiness, the President of the United States and Protector of Their Liberties. That is not a lyric from Hamilton, <laughs> unfortunately. But I could believe it was true because the office of the President, right at the start, they were just figuring out what kind of thing they wanted it to be, whether it was going to be closer to, not royalty, but basically you were going to be the President for life and... As depicted in Hamilton, Washington decides to step down and allow somebody else to take over so that no one person ever gets too much power for too long. But I can imagine right at the start when he's sworn in, he would have had a much grander title than the one that it eventually evolved to be. That sounds reasonable. So I've, I've developed um, a procedure whereby when I hear the word Hamilton coming from Daniel's mouth, I stop listening for the next five minutes. <laughs> Well, good, we can get on with the podcast without John then. Um, (laughs) Hamilton, Hamilton, Hamilton. Um, The octopus one could be plausible because they would probably live in the deep, deep ocean where you wouldn't need sight. An octopus is blind? Well, it's dark down there, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, there'd be no point having good eyesight because when would you ever need it? I guess. It'd be cool if like humans had to do that. Like They couldn't (laughs) tell what sex each other was until they felt bumps on their head. That'd be cool. No? Would it? <laughs> we should get you one of those phrenology skulls. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I found some bumps. That's not my head! <laughs> John has an otter in the studio. <laughs> I've vaguely heard the waterbed thing before somewhere. The the book, the Stranger in the Strange Land, is fictional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sci-fi. Yeah. Would that count as something that could block a patent if it's invented in a fictional context. I don't know, because like Alfie Clark came up with satellites and things like that, didn't he? And I think yeah, and and that didn't prevent 
other people coming up with them. But I suppose a waterbed is a specific thing. Yeah, I think that's... Apparently described it in detail mm-hmm. and actually mentioned it in three different novels. Why was he so uh, obsessed with waterbeds? I think he had a reason he found it difficult to lie down. Oh, okay. Mm. The third one, you said, I think Dan will argue with me on this one, which suggests that it's true, but you were worried that Dan would pick a hole in its accuracy. Yeah, that's my thinking as well. I I think you, unless you're double bluffing us, there was a a slip there and a look towards Dan. Mm. So I'm going to say that octopuses don't touch each other's bumps to find out what sex they are. They just ask politely. Are these giant octopuses as depicted in the film Megashark versus giant octopuses, or are these actually just real, larger-than-usual octopuses? They're real, larger-than-usual octopuses. Yes. Okay. Or octopi. Yes. In their garden. Hazel? Can you pass the Haribo? And I will think about it. (laughs) We are passing the Haribo. We we have the small version of this bowl at home. Mm. Listeners. Ah, I, I lost a small version of that ball. Somebody stole it from a house party once. You've never invited me to a house party, so <laughs> and now you know stop why. looking at me. Um, I am going to go with the first one as being untrue. Which no, was... wait. Nope. The octopus one as being untrue. Okay, so octopus. Mm-hmm. John? Octopus. Octopus. The octopus one is not true. <gasps> Yay! The only way they can tell is actually by having a fumble and sticking their tentacles in the other octopus's private parts. It's the only way of finding out whether it's male or female. We've all been drunk in the big market on a Friday night, Peter. It's nothing to be ashamed of. So you only find out if you make a mistake when it's too late. Uh, yes. Such is life. So you imagine them all going, I'm very sorry to each other <laughs> after having a. After having day a... At Tinder, wouldn't they could, like swipe at it at once? Mm. Awesome. So like, you can generally say, I tripped and fell over and it fell in. Yeah, while while giving someone an octopus reach your own. Mm. We did go off on some very odd tangents on this podcast. Okay, let's do some recommendations. Some stuff that we've been watching, reading, feeling, listening to some other adjectives uh, recently. Um, Dan, what have you been up to? I've got a couple of recommendations to add to the nerd bookshelf, Ooh. I think. Uh, the first came with the help of Ian Mayer. Uh, I sent a message into The Void to ask if he could recommend me a Captain Marvel comic to get me acquainted with the character before her film comes out mm-hmm. next year. And he told me to read a book called In Search of Flight. And it was really, really good. Gives you a really good sense of who she is as a hero, who Carol Danvers is as a person. It's brilliantly written. You get a really good sense of the character. and. The story's good as well. There's lots of time travel heroic business, but it really helps you understand why she's a great character, and it made me very excited to see the film. Uh, my other one is the latest in quite a long series of novels by an author called David Gibbons, who has been writing books about marine archaeology. And he is a trained marine archaeologist with a PhD from Cambridge, in his spare time when he's not actually diving on shipwrecks looking for ancient artefacts, he writes novels about the stuff he wishes he could discover. (laughs) His protagonist is Jack Howard, who runs the International Maritime University. And the first novel is called Atlantis. What does he discover in the novel Atlantis that's underwater? He discovers Atlantis. (gasps) Wow. Um, 
And it kind of goes on from there. You find They find the Ark of the Covenant, they find the Holy Grail, they find all <laughs> sorts of crazy things like that. But what I love about them is Gibbons really shows you how much he's passionate about the subject. You can tell that he's really interested in the theory behind it and what if we could discover this thing. And in Atlantis particularly, it gives quite a plausible idea of a 8,000 or so year old Minoan civilization that was on a volcanic island in the Mediterranean. And as a result of the eruption, large parts of it were destroyed and sank under the water. It's the second best theory I've heard about Atlantis behind the song Atlantis by Donovan, which is awesome and you should hear it. Have you seen it for us? I would, but Donovan does it better. Jason. Yeah, <laughs> uh, just Donovan. Okay. But yeah, there's all the kinds of history that he's interested in, like the siege of Khartoum in the 1800s, the ancient Romans. He works everything in there. So all the novels have got about three different periods of history in them. They've usually got Nazis in them as the bad guys. And they're very silly, but the science behind all of the dives and things like that is completely accurate. And, has, uh, has something of his been adapted before? Because I feel I've heard his name somewhere um, and I can't place it. You might be thinking of Dave Gibbons, who writes for yeah, 2018. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, um, he's, he's done stuff with the Total War video games before. But yeah, if you need any holiday reading, it is the perfect kind of book that you could pick up at the airport, read on the plane, by the pool or at the beach. The characters evolve throughout the series as well, so you can pick them up in any order, but it does reward it if you read each one as it comes out and you see how they get on and how the finds that they uncover in the last book affect what they're able to do in the next one. Sounds a bit underwatery Indiana Jones, would that be a yeah, fair? The, um the quote that they always put on the back of the books is, what do you get if you cross Indiana Jones with Dan Brown? Badly written Indiana Jones would be the answer to that question. Yeah, I think that's unfair because he is he is a better writer than Dan Brown. Indiana Jones, I can see because mm-hmm. just of the adventures and these really unlikely finds that realistically no one is ever going to discover, but wouldn't it be cool if they did? Mm. Yeah, if you're looking for a book just to pick up and have a fun read, go with Gibbons. I would like to recommend, and don't worry, I'm going to keep it very spoiler free, but I've been to see Mission Impossible Fallout. Yay! Um, And I have to say, I think it's right up there as one of the best films of the year, if not the last few years. Ethan Hunt and the IMF team, they've joined forces with this CIA assassin who's played by Henry Cavill. And they are on the hunt to track down three plutonium cores that have gone missing. And the intent by this uh, terrorist group, who are called the Apostles, is to cause destruction to various religious sites around the world. I don't know how after, what, over three decades in the business, Tom Cruise still manages to show us stunts that we've never seen before, but he does. It's incredible to watch. You're right on the edge of your seat throughout the entire film. And that's credit to him because he does his own stunts. So you see everything. No, everything. (laughs) (laughs) The the scene where the elephant rips off his clothes, you can clearly see it is Tom Cruise and there's no no effects. There's some really ingenious moments where they get themselves into a situation, they get themselves out of a situation. I'm being very general, but Mm -hmm. people who've seen it will know what I mean. There's an incredible one-on-one fight sequence. I was going to say, you you know, there's some incredible uh, chases with like motorbikes and and boats and stuff. Paris stuffs. The Paris stuff is amazing. Have you ever tried to walk across like the road for the Arc de Triomphe? And he like motorcycles backwards around it. The bathroom scene is a a really kind of um, very well choreographed fight sequence. And that's worth the price of the ticket alone, I think. 
So it's not a spoiler because it was in the trailer that Henry Cavill is the bad guy? Well, it's unclear. In the second trailer, it's very clear that he is. I would say it changes. Yeah. I haven't seen the film, but it did look from the trailers like they were setting him up to have a bit of an antagonistic relationship yeah. with Ethan. Is yes, that right? And they do. Um, it's it's very clear that they will take each other out at the drop of a hat, um, even though they're supposed to be on the same mission together. That's not the main part of the film, whether he mm-hmm. is a good guy or not, which is why Macquarie, the director, was all right with it being in the trailer. Like, you know, let's just show it. Tom Cruise said, no, put it in the trailer for the reason that... If people went in expecting Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill to be buddies and it to be like a buddy action film, they would feel disappointed and come out of the mm. cinema feeling sad when that wasn't the case. And I think, as I say, that's not the main point of it. No, it's not. It's just such a brilliant film. And normally with Mission Impossible films, they have a different director every time. Mm-hmm. So you've got De Palma, then John Woo, then J.J. Abrams, then um, Brad Bird. Macquarie came in for Rogue Nation, but they've kept him on for this one. Did I hear Macquarie was trying to make it feel different to his previous yes. film as well? Yeah, exactly. But not to the extent that it actually turned out to be. So he pitched a lighter version to Tom Cruise and he thought, Tom's never going to go for this. It's too dark. Cruise replied saying, make it darker. Mm-hmm. So it feels more of a grown up Mission Impossible, but still leaves you feeling like you've watched a Mission Impossible film rather than you've seen like a Born Identity film, which I would describe as gritty. Mm-hmm. This wasn't gritty. This was still fun, but it's just blistering action from yeah. start to finish. The consensus seems to be they do Bond better than Bond now. Yeah, I was yeah. Like with say pretty gadgets much and technology, mm-hmm. I would say so. I can't take credit for this because I saw it on Twitter, but someone said, geez, the first 15 seconds of Mission Impossible 4, <laughs> that was a bit slow, in it? And it <laughs> <laughs> And it opens in a dream sequence of Julia, his wife. This Michelle Monaghan. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Then it goes, bam, straight into action. Actually, the title sequence is about 16 minutes into the film. And Macquarie said he had to do that so the film would feel shorter because it's, it's quite a long it's film. It's two and a half hours. Yeah. It's yeah. two hours, 20 minutes. It was about two hours, two and a three, two, three quarter hours. And he had to cut some, he said, some really, really nice looking shots that looked spectacular. But they didn't add anything to the story. So anything that didn't had to go. And you can tell it was, he was ruthless in his editing. The pace through the action scenes just kept completely pedal to the metal all the way through. Yeah. You don't stop for the nice shot. You just yeah. keep it going. Yeah. Would you compare it to Fury Road in terms of nonstop action? Um, not, I mean, not in terms of plot or anything. Yeah. But it's a different pace. It's more mm. like there's three or four bursts of really yeah. fast, really involving serious action sequences. Yeah. I'd say the last third is some of the best action and some of the best storytelling I've ever seen on film because your characters are split into three groups, but there's like a tension plot that surrounds all three of them. So the, the multi, multi, multi-million pound question, mm-hmm. was the moustache worth it? <laughs> Absolutely. He, <laughs> he looks he, hot. <laughs> he rocks the tash, does he? Yeah, it, he looks nothing like Superman, which was the intent. Mm. So, yeah, I'm glad they forced him to do that and had a ridiculous... Is he, is he a good actor in this? Because he's, he's yeah. quite wooden in... Uh, Man from Uncle? And... No, I'm struggling to think of what else I've seen him in. Film. He wasn't standout in it, but mm. did the job. Here's a question. For those of you who've seen it, is it Tom Cruise's best film? No. It depends how you're measuring mm. it. Mm. And it... You could almost arguably say it's not quite a good film in what everyone would necessarily mean by a good film, but what is an absolutely phenomenal action film. Yeah. I guess it's Tom Cruise doing what Tom Cruise does best in terms of action. It's right up there. Mm-hmm. 
What I quite like him in, and it's only because I'm an Aaron Sorkin fan, is A Few Good Men. That's probably my favourite Tom Cruise film. Mine is Tropic Thunder. (laughs) (laughs) There's no homoerotic volleyball montage in Tropic Thunder, though, is there? So it's got to be Top Gun. Ranking it in terms of Mission Impossibles, I think it's the best one since the first one, which we're going to talk about later on in the podcast. Uh, The first Mission Impossible, probably one of my favourite films. And I think it leaps right over two, three and four. As a series, it sounds a bit like The Fast and the Furious as well, where it's by three or four, it's got into its rhythm and it's got the regular, slightly bigger cast. So like Simon yeah. Pegg joining three and a few... They, they're firmly settled into their roles now, so yeah. they're able to play with themselves a bit. Oh God, that sounds so dodgy. <laughs> Luther and um, Benji each have their own little fun moments. Does Simon Pegg look <laughs> dead behind the eyes? Or? No, not no. at all. Yeah. But what you do get is the feeling of a really slick production machine that knows what is going to make things work. And like Cruz has a sense of what's going to work well for yeah. him on screen and all that sort of thing. Yeah. If you're, if you're interested in filmmaking or how an action sequence is put together, listen to as many Christopher McQuarrie interviews as you can, because he's incredibly articulate, incredibly honest about what it takes. It's just some really incredible insights into the world of filmmaking, which I'm really, really interested in. So what else has he done? Well, he wrote The Usual Suspects. Yeah, no, I, I know he more as a writer than a director. And also, he's worked with Tom Cruise something like the last five or six tomorrow, films he's done. I think done. he made. Yeah. Is that I right? That was no, Doug, Doug Lyman. Yeah. No, no, no. He didn't direct it, but he wrote it. He wrote, he wrote, it. It. He wrote oh, the okay. screenplay for it. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, he also did The Mummy. Oof. Mm. But the, the, don't the hold new, that against him. The new one with Tom Cruise. Okay. Fallout is like a billion times better than The Mummy. Yeah, absolutely. Go and see it. You'll see what I mean. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I'm going to have to try and get to see Fallout. It might have to be next week sometime, but I imagine it'll still be in cinemas. No, they only show it for like five days now. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But he's and only... they don't have cinemas in Scotland. Oh. <laughs> but he has actually only directed about four films. This is like, mm-hmm. and doing a film of this scale as your fourth film is ludicrous. Okay, um, my recommendation is something a little bit left field. I'm going to recommend um, the History Channel series Porn Stars. That's porn as in P-A-W-N, <laughs> not porn as in the stuff that makes up 90% of my other viewing. We're using some voice command thing and that's how you ended up with this program. That was, yes. I want to upload a video to Pornhub that halfway through just goes, uh, Hey Siri, text my wife and tell her I'm watching Anal Treats 4. <laughs> oh, <it's- laughs> it actually works. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yes. <laughs> So, yes, getting back to the more family-friendly porn stars, it's a ridiculously contrived American version, essentially, of Antiques Roadshow. So it's set in the gold and silver porn shop on the Vegas Strip, where you have Rick Harrison, who is the owner of the store, and his kid, and a couple of the other employees, and it's supposedly the day-to-day life of a porn star. Really early series, it was always people bringing things like guns and cars and petrol cans and weird bits of like macho americana but when you get to the later series it actually gets really interesting with some of the things they bring in and they bring in a lot of geek stuff which is why i'm mentioning it and it's really interesting to find out about some of these things that people bring in so a recent episode somebody brought in some jack kirby original drawings that they'd got at comic book conventions and they've got the comic book experts coming in and talk about jack kirby and value them um, some woman brought in, which went, I think, for $10,000, a 
a Batman utility belt from the 1960s TV series, which had been sort of the merchandise at the time, still in its original box and everything. And you get quite a lot of comic book stuff and nerd stuff and music stuff. So there's always one or two things an episode that's really interesting to find out about so if you can ignore some of its tackiness to some extent um you know that it's an american network tv show with all that implies there's some good good stuff on there Hmm. antiques roadshow for nerds (laughs) you could take your star tours they can't have it (laughs) (laughs) for some reason i always seem to do zombie things i don't know why that is it's not like i only watch zombie stuff you always do zombie things so I did cargo. In your spare time? Or? <laughs> no, I talked about cargo and I talked about Santa Clarita diet. And there's, there's been a few things here and then. You said I should be burned at the stake for not having watched Zombieland. And having seen Zombieland, do you agree? Yes. <laughs> right, there you are then. <laughs> shame we'd bought the stake, so it'd be a shame not to use it. So this week I'd like to talk on behalf of Fear the Walking Dead. Now, obviously, on behalf of, are you going to rally for of. it? Okay. <laughs> I feel um, this might turn into an episode of Nerd Court if we're not careful. <laughs> for those who don't know much about it, obviously The Walking Dead was a massive worldwide success, did really well, though it's been in the doldrums a little bit more recently. And AMC asked Kirkman to come up with a sister series set in the early days of the zombie outbreak. So it it's, all occurs quite a bit before The Walking Dead happens. It had good bits, but it was dragged down a bit by the female leaders, like a matriarch of a small family group. She's just a bit annoying, really, and every group they stumble across, she'll suddenly somehow become the leader of that group and just boss everyone around. <laughs> it's, it's had its good bits over the first few series, but it had a bit of a lull in the last one. But in this fourth series, they seem to have really kicked it in the arse. They moved Lenny James across from The Walking Dead. He even got a bit boring in The Walking Dead in the last series of that. But coming into here, it's been like a fresh lease of life. He's a reinvigorated and much more interesting character. Is his character up to date with where he was in the main Walking Dead series, or is it him at an earlier point? What they actually do is the first episode starts with a whole load of Walking Dead characters talking to him, establishing the time thing that way. Uh, And he then leaves the place he was left in The Walking Dead. And the first episode is almost entirely spent with the three or four new characters they're introducing. And it's only in the last 30 seconds that they then meet some of the people in the group that you used to from Fear the Walking Dead. So it's, it's almost like a declaration of policy of this is a fresh, new, clean start. Mm. So there's and, a time jump, isn't there? So yes. Fear the Walking Dead is now where the Walking Dead is time-wise. But from what I understand, there's going to be a time jump in the Walking Dead as well in the next series. Oh, right. Okay. From the Comic-Con trailer, it looks like at least a couple of years have gone past. Mm. Is that baby finally going to get bigger? Uh, <laughs> Judith. Yeah. Yes, and... Uh, Maggie might be five weeks pregnant by the time we get back. I'm trying not to say because Hazel's not up to date. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so what they then do, though, is jump back to show how things got to the end of that first episode mm-hmm. and sort of fill in the blanks a bit of what happened between the two. The slight downside of it, I'd prefer if they didn't jump around in time so much. I'd prefer them to have a slightly more linear storyline. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you'd found it getting a bit dull... Give it another chance because uh, it it massively improves when those people... For me, it was just people in the same situation as The Walking Dead, but a group of characters I cared less about and found less interesting Mm -hmm. than The Walking Dead group. Exactly, and that's why introducing new characters Mm. was absolutely the right thing to do. But I I hear it's better than The Walking Dead now. I would totally agree with that on this last series. Yes, it's better than the last series of The Walking Dead. Where are you up to on The Walking Dead, Hazel? We are about five episodes into season five. So you've still got a long way to go. You're still about three years behind. 
What's annoying me at the moment is that the storylines are very separate and people are in different locations. Mm. So what they do yeah. is they focus on someone's storyline for an episode or maybe two episodes. And then they don't come back to that for about six or seven more episodes. Yeah, get yeah. used to that. And my friend yeah. and I are watching it on average about once a month. So it's played about six months before I, you know, yeah. we find out what happens. And I, by that by that point, I've forgotten. I know I know that's a unique situation. It's not that yeah. unique. I mean, no, it happens yeah. when you watch week by week as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ironically, one of the best episodes in this particular run of Fear the Walking Dead is that they just take two of the characters they've just introduced, flashback to how they met. And it's a really good episode with just those two mm-hmm. featured in it. Yeah, and I, th- I think if you build up a strong enough ensemble cast, you can do episodes that just focus on one or two of them, mm-hmm. and it makes the show better. I mean, season two of Glow does a very similar thing on Netflix. It spent the first season and a half building up this core cast of characters, and one of the episodes in season two just focuses on two of them and how their lives are developing as people as mothers and as wrestlers in the program, within the program. And it's such a good episode. And most of the cast barely feature in it. It's just the two of them. And it makes the show as a whole stronger because you get to see one of these characters that's normally on the periphery and you get more reasons to care about them. If you get a good enough ensemble where you think, I want to know more about each and every one of these people, it's mm-hmm. a great thing to mm-hmm. do. Atlanta does that quite a lot. Atlanta will just go and follow a minor character for the entire episode. They've got a small cast, but every member of that cast is really interesting, so you will follow them. Whereas with The Walking Dead, I think some of the characters aren't interesting enough to support that. Like that one guy and that other one. <laughs> and the other one, yeah. <laughs> Without spoilers. And, and I think what The Walking Dead does as well, which is frustrating, is it will end on a cliffhanger for a character. And then it won't go back to that character for another yeah, three or four that's episodes. What's yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It's annoying. Yeah. There's um, another series starting on American TV called The Passage, which is based on a book by Justin Cronin, and it looks like it'll be focusing on the first book in the trilogy, which shows the outbreak of something that's not quite zombies. It's partway between a biological zombie outbreak and vampirism, mm-hmm. and if it's half as good as the book, it's going to be really, really good. And I'm going to be looking out for that when it comes on because the book, you read it and it's really interesting. And then he takes it in places that you would never expect it to go. And you turn the page and suddenly everything you thought you knew in the 200 pages before that has been turned on its head. If the series can recapture some of that, I think that will be the sci-fi horror-ish series to overtake The Walking Dead and really grab people in. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It is now time for the final of Nerd of the Mastery Mind. So uh, in previous episodes, we all took on our specialist subject and the three finalists are Dan, John and Peter, who are now going to go head to head in a three way final. I've got 10 questions, all general movie trivia. First one to buzz in with a correct answer gets a point and the winner will be crowned Nerdy, 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 Nerdy Mixum. Nerdy, 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 Nerdy Mixum. Yes. I see. Okay. Do you want us to buzz in or do you want us to make noises? I want you to come up with your own sound effects. Okay. So, John, what's your sound effect going to be? Too familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Dan? The traditional buzz. Buzz. Okay. And Peter? Dong. 
Peter's doing a dong. Peter, okay. can you do your dong again, please? Dong. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only a little dong, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just a reminder, Quizmaster's word is final, so don't try and challenge me. <laughs> that was threatening. <laughs> if you can, uh, if you could see the look that Hazel is giving Peter here, do not try and challenge me. Why do I get the blame? Um, We've done pub quizzes with you. Yes, yeah. this is true. He's like, oh, I'm just going to go and check something with him. Five minute debate later. <laughs> if the first question is, is Downton Abbey a miniseries? Then we may be here a while. Okay, I'm still angry about that. So yeah, buzz in with your sound effect, not the answer. Otherwise, I will deduct a point. Most amount of points with 10 question is the winner. Ready? Is there a penalty or? Mm, let's see. I'll, 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 I'll take it as it comes. I might, in- <laughs> <Dong>. <laughs> I might inflict, um, yeah, a few. Uh, what's that word again? Forfeit. Forfeit, yeah. Mm. On, uh, <laughs> on anyone who tries to take the piss. I might give you a film that you have to watch. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, question number one. What novel is Die Hard based on? Oh, fuck. Fuck, I know it. Buzz, Moby Dick. (laughs) 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 The Bible. (laughs) Don't, the apartment? No, it's 58 minutes. That's the one. Mm. I thought you'd have got that one. I didn't even need to look that one up. I just <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so it's no points to question number one. Question number two. What's the name of Will Smith's character in Independence Day? Buzz. Dan. Mr. Welcome to Earth, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant name. Hello, I'm Mr. Welcome to Earth, motherfucker. Did he say motherfucker? I think I, it's a bit more in polite my, than that. In my memory of watching it, he does, but that might not have been it's what a, actually it's a happened in the 13, film. So I think, I think no. he's about to say it gets cut off. Okay. <laughs> no, that's uh, Die Hard 4. Mm, is it John. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? <laughs> <laughs> are these just things that I know? The I, I, yeah, I just maybe. know these things anyway. Pete, would you like a guess? Peter, any idea? Mm, truck Stamper. No. Truck Stamper, that's it's a transformer. It's not Harry Stamper's son, no. Um, the correct answer is Captain Stephen Miller. So yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. As in yeah. the singer. Abracadabra. Stuck in the middle with you. Oh, no, well, no, that's Steelers, that's Steelers Wheel. Wheel. You're Steelers thinking Wheel. of, um, some people call him the Space Cowboy. That's one, yeah. And uh, many people refer to Will Smith the same way after Wild Wild West. Ah. Others called him the Gangster of Love. <laughs> Question number three. Which 1997 film stars Nicolas Cage, John Cusack, and John Malkovich? Mm. John. I was going to say Bean John Malkovich, but I don't think Nicolas Cage is in it unless he has a cameo. Mm. Nope. Normally oh, you remember. Oh, shit, I know. I know. Can I have another go, please? Uh, point have, point have blank. Guess? No. Uh, John, have your second guess. Is it Conair? It is Conair. Uh, um. Well done. Awesome film. I don't remember John Cusack. Is he the guy trying to get the plane yeah. back? Yeah. Okay. What were the three songs that the band Aerosmith sang in Armageddon? Buzz. Dan. Don't want to miss a thing. Yep. Sweet Emotion. Yep. And... I'll give you three points for this, by the way. Okay. You've got two so far. <gasps> <laughs> I'll go with Back in the Saddle. 
No. Ah. It's not two points, though. He said he'd get him three points if he got all three of them. So he gets two for getting two. And that wasn't... <laughs> Quizmaster says... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Quizmaster says... <laughs> so what was the third one, then? Anyone want to try and get it? I think there are five. Is it Love in an Elevator? No, it's not. Walk This Way. Okay, it's What Kind of Love Are You On? Uh, okay. No. That's a 90s Aerosmith song, that one, I think. Don't know that one. Name the movie this quote is from. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Mm. John. Is it Home Alone? It is Home Alone. I always say that to pizza delivery guys. Do you really? Yeah, I really do. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> and how often do they look blank? <laughs> and you've ordered on Just Eat and you've paid by card. <laughs> there, there's an amazing clip Macaulay Culkin, who is a big wrestling fan, appeared at a local independent show as Kevin from Home Alone and defeated <laughs> the bad guys in the main match with Kevin-esque tricks and celebrated with Santa at the end. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So do you have like a big tin of paint suspended? I think he did side. and like things for them to fall over on the ring canvas and that <laughs> sort of thing. He dated Myla Kunis for a long time, didn't he? He did, yeah. Mm. There's always a set load of each of isn't there? <laughs> You tell that to the otter. <laughs> it couldn't reach, that was the problem. <laughs> Question number six. In which film is there a Starbucks cup in every scene? Buzz. Dan. Starbucks the movie. Moneyball? No. There is there's famously a lot of Starbucks cups in Fight Club, but I don't think there's one in every scene. I'm going to say fight. That's them. probably the answer. <laughs> Dan takes a point. What? what? Oh, bullshit! That is that. That is. <laughs> you said you didn't think it was Fight Club. I said there is a lot of. I, I clearly. <laughs> so in every we're scene, sure if they were in every in, scene. In, in I'm every, sure in, Dan will be a gentleman award. In every single scene. Question number seven. <laughs> <laughs> Readers, um, our <laughs> listeners, <laughs> um, the first person to watch Fight Club, if they could tweet us at Nerdfest UK and let us know if they can find a single scene without a Starbucks coffee cup in and uh, you win Hazel for the night. <laughs> 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 she, she will deliver Starbucks to you. And you can keep the change. <laughs> you filled the animal. animal. <laughs> okay, uh, question number seven. The Phantom Menace was also a character in which early sci-fi comic series? Um, John. I would guess Flash Gordon. You would guess correct. I didn't know, but I know George Lucas is a big, big yeah. Flash Gordon fan. So after seven questions, uh, John and Dan are tied on three points each. How many does Peter have? Peter is yet to get off the mark. <sighs> Dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which Japanese director directed 1954's Godzilla? Ooh. Dong. Zaro Honda? Yes. Well done. Well done. Thank God for that. <laughs> Penultimate question. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has been made into films many times, but who is the author? Dumpers. Peter. Correct. Yeah. So this could be a three-way tie at the three-way final if Peter gets this one correct because Peter's on two and John and Dan are on three. Mm. Final question. Which actor 
links The Da Vinci Code, X-Men and Coronation Street. Mm. Buzz. John. Paul Bettany. Incorrect. Ian McCallan. Correct, Dan. Oh. So Dan just scrapes it with four points um, yeah. versus John's three points against Peter's two points. Yeah. Very well done. Very close fought battle. Is this including Dan's point for Fight Club? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you would, Dan, if you were a gentleman? Go on. You'd, you'd, you'd give me this. I deserve it. I want it. And it's all I've got, Dad. You've got otters. <laughs> and an elephant. No, it's the prize an elephant. What is the prize? It's a nerdy, nerdy <laughs> Don't say nerd. Hazel for the night. <laughs> Spare Peter for the night. <laughs> Second prize was Peter for two nights. <laughs> I will give the prize next podcast. Ooh. How do you feel, Dan? I, I feel vindicated. I feel happy. And victorious. And victorious and glorious and very pleased that I know Fight Club so well. (laughs) (laughs) Have you you ever seen Fight Club? I have seen Fight Club. I've read Fight Club. Is there a lot of Starbucks in it? Yeah, every scene. Every scene. Mm. Did you not know that? It's a coffee cup. Mm. I know it's on the the photocopier at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then they smash up a Starbucks, don't they? But in the film, is it not a Starbucks they smash up? Is it not a um, a chain coffee store that looks like a Starbucks? Its name is Robert Paulson. <laughs> is that Meatloaf? It was yeah. Meatloaf. Mm. Have you seen what Meatloaf's doing at the moment? Meatloaf is touring, but because his voice is gone, you get Meatloaf comes on stage with another guy. Meatloaf goes, oh, this is a Pat Out of Hell, one of my favourite songs. And then the guy sings Pat Out of Hell while Meatloaf sits in a chair and watches him. What? Yeah, this is the entire show. Yeah, I did. I went to see Meatloaf probably about eight or nine years ago, and his voice was going, but he could still go for it. Got very sweaty. I was at the back of the arena, and you could and tell, you could, tell you, the you, sweat. could tell, you could see the sweat from there. But yeah, he could he could still just about mm-hmm. hit the notes. Yeah, there's a Bad Out of Hell musical in London at the moment as well. I think. Yeah, Jim Steinman's Bat Out of Hell. Yeah, presumably encompassing albums two and three as well. There was a third one. Yeah. Was, wow. Uh, I think it was somewhere around 2007. I know this because there's one song on it called Blind as a Bat. And if my friend, my other <laughs> my other friend, John, who listens to this, when we were students, when he got drunk, he would recite the lyrics from Blind as a Bat from Bat Out of Hell 3 repeatedly <laughs> for the entire night. We would be walking through the streets of Jesmond and he would just <laughs> be talking about how his heart was painted black and he was blind as a bat. <laughs> the only words you could get out of him after he'd had a certain amount of alcohol. <laughs> so I am very well aware of Bat Out of Hell 3. <laughs> you know he says, I can see Paradise by the dashboard light. Mm-hmm. Are you wondering what part of the anatomy that's referring to? It, well, I assume he was doing doing a sex in a car. <laughs> that's right. what the song's about, yes. Yeah. So, uh, if the, the interlude of uh, the, the baseball announcer talking about the bases <laughs> being hit while a woman moans in the background didn't give it away. I, as a small child, I never got that. <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't know why I was listening. I thought they would just really enjoy listening to baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so the dashboard light presumably is a light. Yeah, Paradise is next. It's, you, I can't be comfy for her, can it? They've probably reclined the seat. Yeah, but still, I mean, that, she's still next to the dashboard Look, she's light. She's doing it with meatloaf. She's not going to be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> 
So now we're going to go over to Ian Mayer, who's based in The Void, of course. Um, he's got some very interesting ideas about the development of Alien 3. Hola nerds, it's occasional contributor Ian Mayer here. Greetings from The Void. A little bit of nerdy news that caught my eye recently was that Dark Horse Comics producing a comic book adaptation of William Gibson's unproduced screenplay for Alien 3. Alien 3 is very famous for having multiple scripts done by multiple writers before the eventual direction was decided. Fox contracted famous science fiction author William Gibson to produce a draft in 1989. It's really kind of cool, and if you read the comic, you'll find it's kind of cool. You can see samples of the comic at Comic Book Resources, that's cbr.com. It focused on Hicks and Bishop as uh, characters, Ripley and Newt having escaped to Earth in this version of it, and kind of had a Cold War analogy. Um, if you think about aliens, there, there are colonial marines in that, fighting aliens is something they don't normally do so who are they fighting well in this draft it's for want of a better word space communists there is this kind of faction of the union of progressive people who find alien eggs themselves and there's this kind of arms race to develop aliens as weapons which is uh, you know something that became a theme throughout it's super cool it's set on a space station there's um, a big thing about alien morphology and alien genes changing which of course is a thread that was picked up throughout the series and it's well worth a look. Um, it would have been super, super expensive. And, and so Fox passed, then asked another writer, a guy called Eric Red, to produce another draft in 1989. Now, Eric Red is perhaps famous in geek circles for writing the cult sort of horror thriller, The Hitcher. He's also the co-writer of um, Catherine Bigelow's vampire classic, Near Dark. Now, his version is absolutely insane. It does away with all the cast of the original films, killing them off screen. It begins with... A group of marines boarding the Solarco that's floating through space, finding evidence that like Ripley and co. had been impregnated with aliens and they're attacked by xenomorphs. The story follows one of these soldiers after the attack, one who survived. And it appears to be set on kind of a rural sort of American farming village, which actually turns out to be a space station doing, uh, you'd guessed it, military alien research in its lower floors. This is, for my money, actually the craziest draft, although we get to another very crazy draft soon. This again pushes the morphology of the alien, like at one point there's a dragonfly alien harassing the uh, farming community, and it ends with the space station itself turning into a giant mechanical bio-alien thing that attacks shuttles. Now I can understand why this one was cut, it was nuts. And so Fox again commissioned another writer, this time David Twoey. Now David Twoey should be famous to uh, geeks for being the writer and director of Pitch Black, Chronicles of Riddick, and its sequel, Riddick. He's one of the writers of Waterworld, and he's done tons of genre stuff. There's geek cred there. Now, this might be my favourite of the unmade scripts. It's certainly the slickest and most Hollywood of them. It has no connection to the events of the previous Alien films, except for featuring like the company Whalen yutani The aliens themselves come from like a, a facehugger that's found encased in amber in an asteroid field. Now, this one's set on like an orbital prison planet, where the prisoners are sort of subject to alien experiments. Again, there's tons of different kind of alien types in this one. There's an alien that excretes acid from its skin and uses it to melt through walls. There's an alien with a skeleton that's described as being like a snake so it can bend and fit through the prison bars. Now, a thing I really like about this draft is if you blink, you can kind of see bits of Chronicles of Riddick in it, um, like with the prison planet. It's a good sort of geek curio, uh, which you can Google and if you ever want to read. This too was rejected. Then comes perhaps one of the most infamous produced films in the world. The Fasano draft. John Fasano is um, a very experienced screenwriter with tons of like uh, writing and production credits, and he was asked to produce a draft in 1990. 
Now, if you've ever heard the geek kind of urban legend of an alien film set on a wooden planet with monks hitting the aliens with pieces of wood, that's this one. It exists and it's as batshit crazy as it sounds. Imagine kind of a Luddite space station, like manned by essentially medieval monks. Inside, there's like a giant painted ceiling that resembles like Renaissance painting that Ripley's escape pod crashes through. It does really cool things with the alien, like according to the lore in this film, the alien only looks as it does, this kind of biomechanical monster, because we only have seen it in mechanical settings, it actually morphs to its surroundings. So in this script, you see it in a cornfield, and it actually looks kind of organic and golden and kind of beautiful. Now, it's absolutely insane. It would have been a completely different direction for the alien films. But again, it's kind of cool and interesting to read with lots of good ideas in it. In 1992, when Alien 3 actually started filming, with David Fincher doing his first feature film, it actually started without a finished script, which, given all the work that had been put into these previous drafts, seems crazy. But then Walter Hillcoming, who was the producer on Alien and Aliens, and finished it off, and that's how we ended up with the Alien 3 we have now. So, if you want to read the William Gibson unproduced screenplay, you can find it online, but I would suggest checking out the Dark Coast comic, which really looks kind of cool. See you later. And finally, it is time for Shameful Gap. Now, this is when, if one of us nerds has not seen a famous nerdy film, they have to own up to it, and then watch it for the very first time, come to the podcast to talk about it. Who is going to own up? It is me. Watch a Shameful Gap, John. I have never seen Paradise by the Dutchman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's cold and lonely in the deep dark night. I have never seen Mission Impossible. Shame. I have never seen any of the Mission Impossibles. Shame. Double shame. <laughs> I didn't know very much about I knew the TV series better than the film. Um, I knew the theme so tune. you hadn't seen the film, that would be difficult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was more culturally aware of the TV series. I knew the theme tune from the film because, um, was it U2 or part of U2? Too often, yeah. Two of U2, Lavi Mullen. So that was all over sort of the mid-90s. Obviously, I knew Tom Cruise was in it. I knew um, John Voight was in it. So I did go in not knowing a great deal about it, and I really, really enjoyed it, much more than I thought I would. I'm not a Tom Cruise fan. Is that why you hadn't seen it until That probably now? is, yeah. I just, there's something a little bit creepy about him. It's an odd thing with Mission Impossible films. I've never been actively disinterested in them, but other than the first one, which I saw at the time, they've always passed me by mm-hmm. as they've been in the cinemas. And it's like, oh, Mission Impossible 2's out. Oh, Mission Impossible 3's out. And I've just never got into them. I I saw Ghost Protocol and I've seen Rogue Nation, but only on the TV a few years later because they happened to be on. It's just not been a franchise Mm -hmm. that I've been massively culturally aware of, like a Star Wars or a Jurassic Park, even though they are huge films. It's odd. They don't seem to have that build-up, like when, you know, when when the new James Bond coming out, it's a massive cultural event and they never have seemed to have done that. Yeah, so I can understand not having seen Mm -hmm. any of them before. We start, it feels almost like a sequel because you start with the mid-mission with his Mission Impossible team and you've got some big names in there. You've got, I think, Emilio Estevez is in there, mm-hmm. Vanessa Redgrave, a couple of others, and they you get a few minutes of them chatting. They go for their mission and very, very quickly, they're all killed. And I did not expect that. I thought we were going to see a team film, mm-hmm. kind of like an episode of the original series where they've each got the special skills and they work yeah. together. And he sort of has to go on the run and he's accused of possibly being a mole or a traitor. And that tends to be what happens in sequels. I thought, you know, am I watching Mission Impossible 2 by mistake? Mm. I don't think I quite understood the plot. You know what the knock list is? Yeah. 
So this is a list of spies, which if you put together with another floppy disk, mm-hmm. it puts the code names with the actual names. And if yeah. it went into the wrong hands, then every undercover agent would be identified. This is very skyscraper, isn't it? Guy Fall. Yeah, that's what <laughs> yeah. I called it today. And it's oh, I wrong. See. It's- <laughs> yes. It is skyscraper. I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of double bluffing and I didn't quite follow what was going on, but I enjoyed the ride as it was on it. Some great action set pieces. And the famous one, obviously, where he's hanging and trying to copy the code from the computer. Mm-hmm. An absolutely ludicrous conclusion where he's flying a helicopter attached to a train through the Channel Tunnel Yeah, with David Schneider. as a <laughs> Great cameo. I did read somewhere that someone actually then flew a helicopter successfully through a train tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Brazil or somewhere in 2007. Why would you do that? Because you can. <laughs> it was directed by Brian De Palma and it felt like something that he was not that attached to. What would you describe as typical De Palma? What do people expect? Hitchcockian, um, psychosexual drama, lots of slow-mo, lots of odd camera angles. There was one sequence and that was very Brian De palma and that was when Ethan Hunt goes to the restaurant. Oh, yeah. So after his team is killed, he goes to meet his boss and he slowly realises as he's looking around that all the people in the restaurant are also spies and that his boss suspects him of being a mole and he escapes fire. Did he shoot a tank of water? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So a load of water comes out and he runs away. And that bit of tension where he's at the table and he's having the conversation with his boss and he's looking around, that was very Brian De Palma, very Hitchcockian. Mm-hmm. Some elements of the initial mission part as well. And mm-hmm. in the embassy and the setup and then walking up and down the stairs, that sort of has a bit of De Palma feel to it. Yeah. But I agree, most of the movie doesn't. Got um, John Voight has Jim Phelps, who was the star of the original TV series and the head of the team in the original series. And in this film, he turns out to be the villain. Uh, yeah, that just felt wrong. To that me. did feel wrong. It, it felt like they trampled a little bit on this mm. beloved character just for the sake of a, a shock twist. Yeah, I, I see. I went in blind for that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about the TV series. So that didn't matter to me. I think Peter Graves had been offered that role. Yeah, he turned it down. Because he said, I don't want my character played for 20, 30 years at this point to turn out to be the villain of the piece. I mean, there's some ludicrous bits. The end where Ethan Hunt disguises himself as Jim Phelps via some amazing magical mask that also makes him shorter and way too stone less. And... Yeah, see, this is the thing. Like, I think it does depend on when you watch it because I think it came out in 96 mm-hmm. and I was 11 and watching it pretty much as soon as it came out, I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. that's the coolest thing ever because that's how I used to sound mm-hmm. when I was 11. Whoa. <laughs> um... You were Bart Simpson when you were 11. No, it was shoes Keanu Reeves. <laughs> yeah. With um, hair though. Yes. <laughs> Down my back, yes. <laughs> Out of context, that sounds really bad. <laughs> Please see my film blah, blah, blah from two episodes ago. <laughs> so is this a common theme in the films then? The masking. The masks, yeah. It, it is, and it, it, I mean, it goes back to the TV show. I think in the film, it's now a bit of a slightly annoying gimmick. Did you see the twists um, coming with the masks in Fallout? Um, I saw both of them miles mm, off. No, I didn't actually, um, but I'm an idiot, so... <laughs> the masks are overused in the second one, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think they kind of clawed it back after that. But I've been told the second one's the worst one. It's it's just really different, um, mm-hmm. a really really different tone. Um, and Dugray Scott is pretty annoying, but st- I think it's still worth a watch. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's got Anthony Hopkins in it. Oh really? I didn't, mm-hmm. didn't know that. That's that little treat yeah. spoiled for me. 
Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think the opening titles would do that for you, John. Well, this is not mission difficult. <laughs> Mr. Hunt, it's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park. Imagine that in Anthony Hopkins' voice. And it's pretty good. It's uncanny. <laughs> no, it, it was like Anthony Hopkins was in the room. Yeah. And Tanya Newton. She's a treat. Yes, Tanya Newton's great in anything. She's the best thing in Westworld. Mm-hmm. This is the first film where there was a big thing of Tom Cruise doing a lot of his own stunts. So when he was on the train, he was actually on the train. And apparently they had wind machines that blew at about 140 miles an hour to get that sort of facial expression as he's been blown around. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise had been in Top Gun and Days of Thunder. and So he'd been pilots and drivers and things like that. Was Mission Impossible his first huge action film? in that sense of running away from explosions and things like that? I think it was, yeah. I can't really yeah. think of anything that he did before that. And also, even Tom Cruise wouldn't be a fighter pilot. No, I he wouldn't learn to do that for <laughs> no. a movie. He probably would now. I mean, it's pretty impressive learning He might have done for, for the new Top Gun, actually. Mm. Yeah. Well, he, he flew the planes in American Made, and that's what inspired him to kind of up his game plane-wise in uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. It's like, oh, you can do that. Do this. Mm. Apparently he has a stuntman and the stuntman's job is to do the stunts before him to make sure that he won't die. Yeah, so it's probably a, a line in his insurance forms. Yeah. yeah. Being like a food tester. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Tom Cruise's death tester. It was the first film for Tom Cruise's production company. And yes. I think he... Um, oh, what's his... What Paul the, Wagner. That's the one. Yeah. And he went in, I think, he, he wanted a franchise and he wanted an action hero film he, and he wanted a commercial success. But it seems like recently he's been trying to acquire franchises all over mm-hmm. the place, like The Mummy and Jack Reacher. Yeah. And there's another one as well, isn't there? There's going to be an Edge of Tomorrow sequel, there is, I yeah. think. But yeah, it only seems to be Mission Impossible that's really caught on and stuck. We got a Jack Reacher sequel, didn't we? Never Back Down or something like that. Yeah, I didn't see it. Me neither. Nope. But other than that, really, no. I mean, the mummy sort of killed the dark universe, didn't it, before it even began? Well, the fact that they'd planned out six or seven films in advance, assuming mm-hmm. they were all going to be big hits, probably And we're going to have Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man. Which is a good choice. <laughs> that we wish he would disappear. Mm. Yeah, I fully support the theory that for Fantastic Beasts 2, his character should take a huge dose of Polyjuice Potion to permanently transform him back into Colin Farrell. Maybe that happens. Well, let's hope. So, yeah. Peter, you, you've seen Mission Impossible 2, haven't you? Two. Two. You've seen... No, you have also seen... <laughs> T <laughs> You have also well. seen Mission Impossible 2. No, you've seen... Correct. <laughs> you have also seen the first Mission Impossible, Peter, haven't you? Uh, yes. I'm going to use the mistakes, but okay, <laughs> you can try and correct yourself if you Is want. Is there a point to your question? <laughs> well, do you have some interesting facts about the film <laughs> that you have watched, Peter? Um... One weird fact is it was the last video from Manger Studio released on Betamax. It was it on killed Be- Betamax. Beta- it was released on Betamax yeah. in 1996. Yeah. Weird, That's huh? Yeah, because it wasn't that long. I after. should point out that John was just showing us his laser discs before. So. Um, yeah, well, I do have a collection of laser discs because I'm a hipster twat. <laughs> <laughs> also, there are supposedly only five gunshots in the movie. Can There's a few be at true? the beginning. Yeah. Um, the Phelps, it, Phelps yeah. fakes his own gunshot. Mm-hmm. He falls in the river. Um, you see the same gunshot a few times, I think, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How does Kristen... What's her name? Kristen... Thomas. Thomas. Scott Thomas. Kristen's Kristen's Scott Thomas. Thomas. She gets stabbed, doesn't she, by the um, fake double agent. That's the knife the that gives oh, yeah. um, Jean yeah. Reno away. Yes. 
Yeah. So there's not that many. I mean, and it's not an overly violent film, though. It's it's fun action set pieces. Yeah, and there's some shocking moments, mm-hmm. like the um the the lift crushing Emilio Estevez. That's like. Uh, that was almost like a psycho moment mm-hmm. there, killing off the, yeah. killing off that character so early. Yeah, brave thing to do, but um, well, it was. I think it was part of the casting. The idea yeah. was to mislead mm-hmm. with that casting. Yeah, definitely. So to summarise, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, a lot of fun, a lot better than I expected right. it to be. I, ex- I expected it to be more dated than it was. So, how many rubber mask reveals out of ten? Uh, it gets seven rubber mask reveals and an elaborate heist out of ten. Do you think it's better than the Born Identity series? No, there's a thing. Is it not earlier by a fair bit? Um, that, no, that there is a thing in that I may have revealed yet another shameful gap. I've never You've seen. Never seen the Born Identity. I've never seen the Born Identity. Shame. Shame. I just I don't like any of them. <clears throat> none of them. No, because as, as I've said before, I don't like James Bond. I know it's not a James Bond, but... He's called Jason Bourne. Jason, oh. <laughs> Same initials. Oh, I just saw the monogrammed suitcase. In this, oh, man. No, I, and because I don't like James Bond and the Bourne identity has been said, it's it's kind of like a modern James Bond. So kind of what inspired the Daniel Craig mm-hmm. ones to be in that they were grittier, but it's not, they're not like James Bond. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not a massive fan of that genre of action film. But you haven't even seen it. <laughs> no, the, 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 you know, the one man hero going around shooting people and shagging yeah, women like and stuff. Yeah, Die Hard, it was terrible. The, the, the Terminator. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it just it didn't look particularly interesting, but am I wrong then? Should I go and check it out? Well, John, you're, you're always wrong, but yeah, you should. <laughs> uh, four, four out of ten says I'm not. Three out of ten. You were wrong there. I've, I've seen, yeah, seen the original Bourne trilogy, and I remember enjoying each of them as I watched them, but I mm. couldn't tell you the plot of any of them now. Didn't they try and yeah, make I, one without Bourne? Well, I won't ruin it for John. Jeremy Renner. So, a double hit for you. So, they made a Bourne film without Bourne in it? Without Matt Damon in it, yeah. It was called The Bourne Legacy. How was that? Lasted one film. And then they brought him back. They brought him back. Yeah. back, yeah. So, if I was going to watch another Mission Impossible film, should I just watch them all in order, or is there any one you would? I I think two's worth a watch. I would mm. just I would just watch them in order. Yeah, I think the sequence yeah. matters a bit more towards the end of the. Yeah, series. when you get Michelle Monaghan's mm-hmm. character, you kind of mm-hmm. need to watch those in order. Um, and that and she gets introduced in three. Just crack on, and then watch the films afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thunder Newton's in two, might possibly. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Really do appreciate it. Remember to check us out on social media at Nerdfest UK on Twitter, on Facebook. Give us some debate topics so we can do debate a nerd again. And yeah, if you if you like us, you know maybe maybe subscribe, maybe maybe leave us a review. Yeah, that'd be nice. Very lovely. But in the meantime, you have been listening to Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, Otto Lover 69, and I'm Hazel Burton, and this message will self destruct in five seconds.
Foam powered dice by the dashboard light. 